This message was presented at the GYC 2013 conference, Before Man and Angels, in Orlando, Florida. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning. You know, it's, uh, you know, when you pastor a church and you have sound difficulties, what's so funny is that, you know, at my church, when something messes up in the sound, we have our AV booth on the balcony. Everybody just stops and stares at the balcony. And uh, right now, sound didn't work, so I just stared at young Solomon right there. And uh, he didn't know what to do either. Unfortunately, I just didn't turn it on. All right, did you guys enjoy your morning seminar, whatever it was? Amen. Amen. God is good, right? We have so much to be thankful for. We're going to start with a word of prayer. Then we're going to begin this presentation with the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you again for this special time. Thank you for being such a gracious God to us. We just want to pray and ask that you'd reveal your glory to us. And Lord, we pray that you would open up the heavens and show more and more about this great plan that's taking place. Thank you so much, Jesus, for being part of our lives and for providence in bringing us here to understand this message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. name of this presentation is called Ellen White and what? UFOs. UFOs. I know half of you guys are very curious, wondering what in the world I'm going to be talking about. Probably another quarter of you are probably thinking to yourself, I'm going to find out if he's an apostate, maybe a little crazy. Um, you don't have to worry about the craziness. I am a little bit crazy, I can tell you that. But I really believe that this is going to be a very unique message, and it's going to expand our horizons. It's going to expand our horizons about the gospel. Now, if you look in the bullet and you look in the handbook, it gives different titles than what I'm actually presenting. I shared a little bit earlier, some of the titles have been changed. And here are the changes in the title. The very next seminar after lunch is called From Krishna to Quickie Marts, How to Minister to Indian People. So if you have Mr. Singh or Mrs. Patel living next to you and you're thinking to yourself, how do I reach them? You want to make sure you come to that. The next thing we're going to be covering after that is how to witness to evolutionists and philosophers in the classroom. I'm going to share a little bit about my classroom experience and some of the things you can do to reach people in the secular classroom. The third thing, we're going to cover angelic psychology 101, the mind of an angel. The mind of an angel. You don't want to miss that. And the last topic, which I think is going to be my favorite, Lucifer and the Great Controversy, Mysteries Revealed About the Great Rebellion. Mysteries Revealed About the Great Rebellion. In fact, I'm also going to have one of my good friends, Nicole Parker, assist me with the Q&A time afterwards. Do you guys know who Nicole Parker is? She's a troublemaker. She's right there also. So, All right, ladies and gentlemen. Something took place in the year 1997. Some of you might be familiar with this, some of you probably not born. But what happened in 1997? Apparently, strange lights begin to appear over the skies of Arizona. Not one person saw it, not two people saw it, not hundreds of people saw it. Literally thousands of people actually saw these strange lights in the sky and they formed a triangular shape. These lights then jetted all in different places. In other words, they were not stationary. My uncle, who actually passed away, was in Arizona at that time, and he saw the exact same lights. Was anybody there in Arizona when it took place? Okay, well, I'm going to give each one of you guys an opportunity to see those lights right now, because it was recorded. Be impressed.
This is what thousands of people saw in 1997 over the skies of Arizona. Precisely right. I muted what the guy was saying because it was a lot of curse words. <laughs> and uh, what's so interesting about this is that a lot of people in our world today really believe in UFOs, they believe in aliens, and they believe in all sorts of unusual things. And more as astronomy has discovered new things in outer space, they begin to become more and more justified about their beliefs in aliens and UFOs. In fact, Huffington Post did a survey about people in the United States who actually believe in UFOs. And look what they said. According to the new survey, 50% of Americans think that there is some form of life on other planets. That's 50% of Americans. While only 17% think that there is not. Another 33% said, we're not sure. In the Huffington Post YouGov poll, a quarter of Americans said that they think aliens have visited Earth. That's a quarter of people in the United States, while a third said they have not. The rest of the respondents were not sure. Among those who said that life exists on other planets, 45% said that aliens have visited Earth. Aliens have visited Earth. So you see in the United States, ladies and gentlemen, there are a lot of people who believe in UFOs, there's a lot of people who believe in aliens, life on other planets, and there are many who believe that their neighbor might be an alien in disguise. Ladies and gentlemen, as we continue to learn more and more throughout this presentation, we're going to understand the truth behind these things. Stephen Hawking, who's considered probably one of the greatest thinkers of all time, said this, To my mathematical brain, the numbers alone make thinking about aliens perfectly what? Rational, he said. Now watch what he says. The real challenge is to work out what aliens might actually be like. In fact, he's written other articles as well. He's afraid that if we contact outer space aliens, that they may not be as friendly as way we may think they be, uh, may be. One of the world's greatest thinkers said we should not be contacting aliens because they may be aggressive and they may steal the resources of our world. Very interesting uh, thoughts that people have, even some of the most wisest men in the world. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as I said before, astronomy has definitely opened up more fields of research in outer space. As telescopes have become more and more advanced, as probes have become more and more advanced, we are seeing more out into the universe than we've ever seen before, ladies and gentlemen, and it is utterly astounding. Do you understand that in astronomy, what we can actually observe and what they are making theories about on those observations is what they call the observable universe? They're not referring to what they call the rest of the universe, or what's termed as the zenith universe. And so when they're making all these calculations about galaxies and about planets and stuff, they're many times not taking into account the rest of the zenith universe, only that which can be observed through satellites, through probes, through telescopes. Ladies and gentlemen, there are different models of the way this universe works. In fact, the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Telescope when it became more and more advanced, they took snapshots, and what they found in that picture right there, ladies and gentlemen, they surmised there are over 10,000 galaxies in that picture alone. They took a smaller picture, a clip of that one, and in that they counted over 3,000 galaxies that they actually believe are out there. Now some of you are thinking to yourself, there is no way they could tell by that grainy, pixelated picture that there are that many galaxies. Well, ladies and gentlemen, more and more astronomy is becoming advanced.
But what's interesting is we've already been given the truth about these things. Amen? Amen. Watch what one astronomer says right here. The Hubble Space Telescope site estimates that there are hundreds of billions of galaxies in the universe. By the way, does anybody know the difference between a galaxy and a solar system? Let's do a little bit of education in astronomy. Can somebody tell me what a solar system is? Okay, raise your hand. No talking without raising your hand. What is a solar system? How about you, young man? That's exactly right. It's sort of uh, the planets that are circling our, the, the, the mother star right here. What is a galaxy? Can somebody tell me what a galaxy is? Yes, you in the back. Very good, a group of solar systems, okay? And now this is interesting. Look what they're saying right here. One, there are hundreds of billions of what? Galaxies in the universe. A recent German supercomputer simulation estimates the number may be as high as 500 what? Billions. Some of you guys are thinking those numbers are too astronomical. You just wait. 500 billion that with many older than the Milky Way. Common observational wisdom among astronomers is that there are 17 billion Earth-sized planets in our galaxies. They don't know yet how many of these worlds are inhabitable zones, but the implications of this discovery are astounding. Simply put, if there are 17 billion Earth-sized worlds in our galaxy alone, in our galaxy alone, it's clear that the universe has the potential to be what? Teeming with life. Very remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. And as astronomy has expanded the field of understanding out into the universe, no wonder people are coming to these conclusions. There must be aliens out in, into the universe. There must be life on other planets. And many of them have surmised that many of these individuals or these aliens or creatures that are out there are actually visiting our planet. In fact, there are many people who have written tons and tons of books about these things. One called The Phoenix Lights, The Flying Saucers. In fact, when you go to any library, you'll find the UFO section, and you'll find all sorts of stories about people who have been anally probed or people who have their cows mutilated. No joke, ladies and gentlemen. There are people, and what's so scary about these things, some of them actually have visible evidence of these things. Now you're thinking to yourself, where is he going to go with this message? You just wait. You just wait. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Okay, so here's the thing, ladies and gentlemen. We need to understand more and more about this phenomenon because we are going to be confronting it, I believe, more and more. Now, I'm going to give you four, what I believe are four possible reasons for all this phenomenon right here. Here it is. You can solve your UFO sighting problems with these four possible conclusions. Number one, it is a delusion that they are delusional, in other words. That there are some kind of issues they may have with their brain. Okay, no joke. Number two, they may have been misidentifying something else out in the sky. It could have been a bird, it could have been another kind of plane. Number three, it could be a satanic delusion. They may be seeing something that Satan himself is producing. And number four, which I believe is becoming more and more evident, that what they are actually seeing is government technology being tested. In fact, what's been declassified recently, it's very interesting, is that the government was encouraging conflicting reports when they were testing their craft. In other words, they were encouraging people to come out with reports saying this and that, and you know what it does? People who say in the sky, oh yeah, I saw a UFO. You know what most people think about when they see someone like that, or they talk to somebody like that? Do, 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 do. That's exactly right. 
Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. In fact, the SR Blackbird, uh, Blackbird was actually being tested, and they were encouraging conflicting reports. Why? Because they needed a way of testing it without anybody discovering what it really was. What it really was. In fact, you can do a little bit of uh, research on this, and you can go to your National Geographic. There are many documentaries about this. Operation Paperclip. Anybody ever heard of Operation Paperclip? Nobody's ever heard of Operation Paperclip. You have. What's Operation Paperclip, John Tillet? <laughs> it's like when you ask little kids, what's the answer? And they'll say, Jesus, every time. <laughs> that is the answer. Amen? It is the answer. But John Tillet's answer was not right. Operation Paperclip is a well-known operation that took place right after World War II where the Americans basically transported scientists who were working for the Nazi regime and what they did is they brought them into their own scientific establishment because what they wanted to do is they wanted to progress um, scientific advancements in technology, specifically in regards to warfare. And what they found out is that the Nazis were actually seeking to develop various kinds of aircraft. Now, the extent of it, we don't know much more than that. But we do know is this that much of the UFO recitings that begin to take place, they took place after World War II. And it may be fears due to the Soviet Union or other things like that, but nonetheless, that they were actually, all these fears begin to spring up and all these Roswell things begin to happen, and it, many of them connected to what they were probably testing. Ladies and gentlemen, what people are probably seeing is government craft being tested. Government te uh, craft being tested. But that still leaves us with another question. Is there really intelligent life out there? You know what's so interesting? If you actually go out into the UFO community, they actually have a high regard for Ellen White. You're thinking to yourself, what? The UFO community actually has a high regard for Ellen White? In fact, take a good look at this. One of the founders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, Ellen White, argued in 1890 that the Logos, passing from star to star, world to war, he's actually quoting from her, superintending all, found sin on earth and became incarnate to save the human race. It was a mystery which sinless intelligence of other, what, worlds desire to understand. In the 19th century, new Protestant movements, which one might expect to be narrow, pursued this theological perspective. Because do you remember what was taking place during the Dark Ages, Middle Ages? They had a very geocentric view of the universe. And as that began to expand more and more, some of these Protestant nations or Protestant entities were still attached to this very Catholic understanding of the universe. And what Ellen White began to talk about, she says, wait a minute, we're not the only planet here. There are other worlds out there. And guess what? The UFO, found, the UFO community found an ally. Quite strange. More than 140 books dealing with the question of extraterritorial life has had appeared. By 1917, the confidence preva uh, prevalent a century earlier that the universe teems with life had seriously diminished. It seems that they would have given up hope, the hypothesis that implied a large number of planets. However, after World War I, the discovery of multiple galaxies through the fashioning of more advanced telescopes, the possibility of other intelligent life reasserted itself. In fact, watch what one other UFO expert says as well about Ellen White. It would astound you how many quotes you'd find. Okay. Such a view of life elsewhere may already have been transmitted. The description is penned by Ellen G. White, a religious leader and visionary seer whom many believe to have been singular inspired. Watch what he says. He's quoting from her now. The Lord has given me, she wrote, a view of other what? Worlds. 
Wings were given me, and an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of that place was living green, and the birds were wobbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the places were of all sizes, noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenance beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of the place. Then I was taken to a world which had seven moons. I begged my attending angel to let me remain in that place. I could not bear the thought of coming back to this dark world again. What a contrast between, now watch where he ends with this, very interesting. What a contrast between such descriptions and the common portrayal of television, movies, and science fiction paperbacks. If vast networks of worlds live in unbroken harmony and mutual allegiance, untouched by malice and death, unspoiled by pollution and violence and greed, then what has been the undoing of earth? Ladies and gentlemen, what is he questioning? Why sin? Wait a minute, if all these worlds are so perfect, what's wrong with this world? And what you are discovering, there are many people in this world who we may view as complete lunatics because they may believe a certain thing. Ladies and gentlemen, the Lord may be working on their hearts. Amen? In fact, watch what this said. By the way, this was actually a Princeton professor who did a study of people who began to believe in extraterrestrial and the belief throughout the various century. And look what he says about Ellen White. In fact, it's so remarkable. I love this quote right here. For Ellen White provided a theology that involved extraterrestrials. In other words, she says there's life on other worlds, including the doctrines that sin only occurred on Earth. That's very important, by the way, that correspondingly Christ came to our planet. And she wrote in one of her books, The Story of Patriarchs and Prophets, it was the marvel of all the universe that Christ should humble himself to save fallen man, that he who passed from star to star, from world to world, superintending all, took upon himself human nature, was a mystery which sinless ages of other worlds desired to understand. This theology not only provided a way about Paine's dilemma. By the way, does anybody know who Thomas Paine was? What book did Thomas Paine write? What book? What else? That's the only book you know about. <laughs> anybody else? I'm not sure if he wrote a utopia. There was another book. Ellen White actually deals with it. You don't know? What? I heard something. Blah, 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 blah. What is it? Googling. Okay. Can you tell us what the answer is? What other books did Thomas Paine write? And why did Ellen White go after him in her writings? Say it. She actually addresses the book Age of Reason, and what he did, he basically took people from a biblical theology, he led thousands, millions, she says, to this understanding of deism. Yes, there was a God out there, but he doesn't really care for our planet. And part of his dilemma was this. This was one of the primary reasons why he, he rejected biblical theology and she provided a way around it. This was his reasoning. He said this, we begin to discover that the universe is getting bigger and bigger. Uh, we understand that it's much bigger. There are other planets out there that are probably inhabited. He says, when we look at our planet, it is messed up. The Bible says, he says, that creation was affected by sin. And he says, wait a minute, it must be our planet and all those other planets. Therefore, Jesus would have to die for our planet. Then he would have to go to that planet and die for them. And he says, that just sounds really illogical. He actually based his rejection upon this proposition. And what Ellen White says is, wrong, 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 wrong. We are the only planet that fell into sin. And her theology that she began to develop under the Spirit of God actually provided a, a way around Paine's dilemma, Thomas Paine's dilemma. 
that much of Christendom was not actually accepting at that time. This theology not only provided a way around pain's dilemma, it also presented a remarkable cosmic conception that seems to be enhanced the attractiveness of this new religion. While White's denomination has continued to grow and in fact to speed, spread throughout the world, current membership being about 4.4 million. Is that true, ladies and gentlemen? That's old school, right? This book was written several years ago. What's the current population of Seventh-day Adventists in our world today? It's close to 20 million. It's close to 20 million. How many of them are converted is another story. Okay. Adventism and the universe, ladies and gentlemen. How do we understand this universe as Seventh-day Adventists? And how do we understand other worlds that are out there? Well, take a good look at this. In Adventism, we find a theological perspective that is very compatible with the world we are living in. Can you say amen to that? One of the things I really appreciate about being a Seventh-day Adventist is that it's very relevant to the world that we are living in. Even what science is discovering, ladies and gentlemen, it's like it's very compatible with what Seventh-day Adventists believe. From biology to astronomy, everything, now pay attention to my words, found or observed is consistent with the Adventist worldview. Can you say amen to that? The spirit of prophecy provides a high-level theological framework for an older universe that has scores of inhabited planets, very distant from, planet, from Earth. Science has begun to observe these countless worlds light years away. Now we're going to take a good look at what she says about these aliens. God's government included not only the inhabitants of heaven, but of all the what? worlds that he had created and Lucifer had concluded that if he could carry the angels of heaven with him in the rebellion, he could also carry all the worlds. But how many worlds? I love what she says right here. This world is but a little what? By the way, can you see an atom? Ladies and gentlemen, do you understand what she is saying about our world? It's a little atom. In other words, you can't see it in the scope of all the universe, in the vast domain over which God presides. She grows even stronger in the language right here. Should all the inhabitants of this little world refuse obedience to God, he would not be left without glory. He could sweep every mortal from the face of the earth in a moment and create a new race of people in it and glorify his name. God is not dependent upon man for honor. He could marshal the starry host of the heavens and the what? Millions of what? worlds above. Someone else was already there, ladies and gentlemen. So over there with that theology, that understanding, to raise a song of honor, praise, and glory to his name. If men could see for a moment beyond the range of finite vision, if they could catch a glimpse of the eternal, every mouth would be stopped in its boasting. Men living in this little atom of a world are finite. God has what? Un what? Unnumbered worlds. How big is unnumbered? that word unnumbered? Yeah, there's not a number that could be used. Well, it's not infinity, but, I, you know, like there is, it is a number that cannot be used, right? In fact, I heard one of the biggest numbers out there is a Googleplex. Check that out for the man that has Google over there. Okay, God has unnumbered worlds that are obedient to his laws and are conducted with reference to his what? His glory. In fact, she actually describes what some of these aliens look like. They're not little green men with big heads, ladies and gentlemen. Physically, that doesn't work. Their head will fall over, okay? The Lord, has given me, the Lord has given me a view of other worlds. 
Wings were given me, an angel attended me from the city to a place that was bright and glorious. The grass of that place was living green, and the birds were there. The birds there warbled a sweet song. The inhabitants of the place were all of sizes. They were noble, majestic, and lovely. They bore the express image of Jesus, and their countenance beamed with holy joy, expressive of the freedom and happiness of that place. I asked one of them why they were so much more lovely than those on the earth. The reply was, we have lived in strict obedience to the commandments of God and have not fallen by disobedience like those on the earth. Then I saw two trees, one that looked like the tree of life in the city, and the fruit looked beautiful, the fruit of both looked beautiful, but, one, but of one they could not eat. They had power to eat of both, but they were forbidden to eat of one. Then my attending angel said to me, none in this place have tasted of the forbidden tree, for if they should eat, they would what? She continues, watch where she is right here. Then I was taken to a world which had seven moons. There I saw good old who? Enoch, who had been translated. On his right arm, he bore a glorious palm. On each leaf was written victory. Around his head was a dazzling white wreath and leaves on the wreath. And in the middle of each was written what? Purity. And around the leaves were stones of various colors. That shone brighter than the stars and cast a reflection on the letters and magnified them. Above the wreath was a lovely what? crown that shone brighter than the sun. I asked him, now watch, it's extremely important. Don't miss this point. I asked him if this was the place he was taken to from the earth. Watch his response. He said, it is not, but the what? City is my home and I have come to what? Ladies and gentlemen, you know what Enoch was doing there? You know what Enoch was doing? Enoch was doing what Enoch did. You know what I just said? Enoch was doing what Enoch did. You know what Enoch would do when he was on this planet? He would go out and he would minister to other places, and then what would he do, ladies and gentlemen? He would go back home to what? Commune with God. And you know what this brother is still doing? He's my brother, so I can say it. You know what this brother is still doing? Ladies and gentlemen, he's out going visiting out of the worlds, and then he comes back, which tells us your ministry that you have on earth is going to continue for all of eternity in a greater way. Amen? Some of you are like, I, I want to travel. I want to be a traveling evangelist. Okay. <laughs> he moved about the place as it was, as if perfectly at home. Now watch what she says right here. In fact, when you come to Angelic Psychology 101 in the last session, you're going to learn a little bit more about the rebellion. Watch what she says right here. All heaven took a deep and joyful interest in the what? Creation of the world and of man. Now watch this. Human beings were a new and what? In other words, there was no other creation that was like humanity. And then watch what she says right here. Next to the angelic beings, the human family being formed in the image of God are the what? Noblest of what? What are the two greatest works of God? Angels and who? Mankind. Those two are the most noblest of all his creatures. Now some of you guys are thinking to yourself, Man, I feel sorry for those other aliens, you know, for this, you know, but ladies and gentlemen, she was talking about perfect humanity, right? Does that make sense? She wasn't referring to imperfect humanity because if, you know, they're less noble than we are right now, we're in big trouble, okay? You get what I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen? Are we tracking so far? Okay, very good. Now we're going to take a good look at what the scriptures are teaching. Now what's interesting, you need to understand something about the Word of God. We need to be very careful about interpretations. We need to make sure that these things are very biblical. However, I believe that as you study the scriptures more and more, God was being very open with this idea. However, he could only give light based upon the capacity of people to understand that light. 
That's super important, ladies and gentlemen. Some people say to ourselves, no, culture is not part of hermeneutics. Wrong. Culture is part of hermeneutics. We need to understand the culture by which things were being spoken at that time. Then it helps us to rightly understand how relevant it is for us. The Word of God is universal. Can you say amen to that? And what you find in Scripture, ladies and gentlemen, is you find indications that God created not just this world, but a bigger universe. Take a good look at some of what the Scriptures are teaching. God, who at various times in various places spoke in times past by, to the fathers by the who? Prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed what? Heir of all things, through whom also he made the, the worlds. Okay, very good. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Let's keep going. 1 Kings 22. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the what? All the what? Host of heaven standing by him on his right hand or on his left. So we're thinking, that could be angels, just angels that around him, possibly. Look what the Bible says in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 6. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens. The heaven of what? Heavens. Pay attention to the key phrase. With all their what? Host. The earth and everything on it. The seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The what? Host of heaven what? Worships you. Let's keep going. I'm going to throw you guys off with this one. Paul had a vision one day. And in his vision, he saw heaven. It's doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, he's obviously talking about himself. Whether in the body, I do not know. Whether out of the body, I do not know. In other words, we're in vision. Sometimes it's hard to see what's happening in a very physical sense. God knows. Such a one was caught up to the what? Ladies and gentlemen, where was Paul taken? Where was Paul taken? Let's look at the rest of it. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up into what? Now, if we didn't have that next word, paradise, we could come up with all sorts of interpretation what third, day is, third heaven is. And I heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Ladies and gentlemen, where is the third heaven? Where does he say is the third heaven? And when you read Revelation chapter 22, where's paradise? I said, when you read Revelation, the end of Revelation, where's paradise? <laughs> it is where, the Bible says in Revelation, I believe it's the last chapter, the throne of God and the river of life is. So in other words, where Paul was cut up was specifically where, ladies and gentlemen? Locationally, where was he? He was caught up at the throne room of God. Do we understand that, yes or no? That makes sense. Okay, good. We need to understand that. Okay, first heaven is what? Our atmosphere. You go to the SDA Bible commentary, you go to Jewish commentaries, they'll say there are three, te three technical, technically three heavens. You have the first one, our atmosphere. You have the third one, God's throne. What's the second heavens? I'm hearing. It's outer space, ladies and gentlemen. 
The first heaven is the atmosphere. The second heaven is outer space. The third heaven is God's throne. Ladies and gentlemen, where do the unfallen worlds live? Where do they live? Where? Oh, come on, you guys. Someone tell me. Where do where these unfallen worlds live? Are you sure? Okay, so all the unfallen worlds live at the very throne of God. Okay, I'm going to put my teacher, professor, Indian professor thing. All right, let's do this again. Where is the third heaven? How do we know it's the throne of God? Because of what? Look at the rest of the verse. It talks about what? Paradise. You read Revelation. Revelation tells you where paradise is, right? It's where? The throne room of God, right? You have the first heavens. God created the heavens and the earth, referring to the atmosphere, right? It is well believed by scholars that the second heaven is an application or reference to the rest of the universe. It is space. Ladies and gentlemen, by implication, where do the unfallen worlds live? They live out in the second heavens. Now, Paul wasn't saying the second heaven is space. He was simply saying the second heaven. He just didn't use those words, but he was implying that's outer space. That's where we know, as Bible-believing Christians, these unfallen worlds actually live. Very interesting. Now we're going to go into something interesting. Take your Bible, go to Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1. By the way, who wrote the book of Job? Who wrote the book of Job? You guys answer with questions. Moses? Who wrote the book of Job? It's Moses. Scholars believe because of the Arabic flavor that it was written by Moses. Ellen White makes reference that Moses wrote it as well. But because of the Arabic flavor, you can see very interesting throughout the book of Job. We're going to Job chapter 1. Job is very important to us, ladies and gentlemen. It has end-time applications. These things are very important. I'm just going to give you a little bit of understanding about the book of Job. Job was considered the greatest man of the East. Are you in Job chapter 1 yet? Yes. Say amen if you're there. Amen. Say mercy if you need more time. All right, we're there. Job chapter 1. Here we go. Let's start with verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was what? Job, and that man was blameless and what? Upright. Upright. And one who feared God and what? Shunned evil. He had seven sons and three what? And also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large what? Household, so that this man was the, notice this, greatest of all the people of the east. And his sons would go and feast in their what? Houses each on their appointed day would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. That's a good family, ladies and gentlemen. You see that? You have this man who raised his family right. He has three sons. And these three sons, they make sure they take care of their who? Their sisters. They're like, hey, you come, you come have dinner with us. You're not going to eat alone. Yeah, guy that left you, don't worry about him. You come stay with us, right? I mean, think about it. If you saw Job, Job would probably be driving a van that had those little family stickers in the back. You know what I mean? Job would probably have a bumper sticker that says, I love my wife. You ever seen those bumper stickers? I love my wife. That's the kind of person Job was. He was a family man. 
And the Bible talks about how God had blessed him in so many different ways. He had so, many, uh, so much wealth and riches, and it seems like he has the most perfect life. But ladies and gentlemen, you're going to discover that one of the most, uh, the man who was blessed with seems with perfect circumstances, and that's very intentional by the author of Job. Perfect circumstances ends up having the most imperfect of circumstances. There's an intentional contrast being sent there. Let's keep going. Job chapter 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to what? Came to what? Present, present themselves before the who? Now when you read the book of Luke, you find the genealogy of the gospel of Luke, right? And what you find is that Luke is very intentional about tracing Jesus from the line of Adam. But do you know what the Bible says about Adam's lineage? Where he comes from? Or what it says who preceded him? It says, now Adam, it, says, it talks about how Adam begat Seth, and Adam was a what? Son of who? God. Now what we understand with a little bit more Bible study is simply that what these people were, these inhabitants that were visiting God, these individuals were representatives of unfallen worlds. In fact, the Bible says right there that there was a day when the sons of God came to what? You know that phrase, present themselves, is found throughout Scripture. The phraseology is constantly there. Present themselves, present themselves, present themselves, present themselves. In fact, you found that when Moses was about to die, God says, you take all the elders and have them present themselves before me. When Joshua was about to die, he had all the people of Israel present themselves. That phraseology appears many times in the Old Testament. And do you know what it refers to? It refers when people are consecrating themselves to God again. Now notice this. This is extremely important because this plays into what happens. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to what? Present themselves before the Lord. Now watch this. And Satan also came among them. It was almost like there was this heavenly worship service that was taking place. People were going to do these, these, these unfallen worlds, these representatives were consecrating themselves. And Lucifer says, I know when to show up. And ladies and gentlemen, I'll tell you this. He is here as well. He shows up and he thinks to himself, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to cause issues right now. And watch where his issues are. Also, Satan came among them and the Lord said to him, from where do you what? Come. And where are you coming from? What planet are you representing? Now watch what Lucifer says next. Satan says next. Satan answered from going to and what? Has anybody ever seen that phrase going to and fro throughout scripture? It appears several times. And do you know what it's a reference to? Always to searching. Searching. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro, looking throughout all the earth. The Bible talks in the book of Daniel, many will run to and fro, and they're looking at the scriptures. Ladies and gentlemen, Satan is saying something very similar. I am searching the earth, is what he is saying right now. But then watch what it said next. And walking back and forth, he's actually, caught, he's actually pulling from Abraham phraseology. Abraham was giving territory of that land. And you know what Lucifer is saying right here? He's saying, I am walking up and down all of planet earth. He's implying there is nobody who can test my authority on this planet. And that is precisely why God says in the book of Job, take a good look at the rest of that part right there. Take a good look. This is extremely important. Verse 8. Then the Lord said, what? Have you what? Considered what? See, God wasn't just provoking him. God knew what Lucifer was saying when he said it. He said, I am walking up and down planet Earth, and I have no challengers. And God said, uh, you're wrong. There is a man 
by the name of who? Job. And by the way, look at the rest of this. This gets even more amazing. Have you considered my servant Job that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who what? Fears God and chunts evil. Now watch what Satan says. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for nothing? Here he knows about Job. In fact, look what he says. You have made a hedge around him, around his household, and all that he has. You have blessed the work of his hands. Did Satan know about Job? He even knew that Job was protected by God. Ladies and gentlemen, the devil knows who you are too. And the more that you are faithful to God, the devil puts a greater target on your back. But you see the book of Job. It's so remarkable. What takes place in the book of Job is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen, because what Satan was doing, he was seeking to attack God's law. He was simply saying in front of everybody in all the whole universe, he shows if intentionally at this meeting because he knows he's trying to cause the rest of the universe doubt about God's law. And he's saying to them, hey, you know the only reason why Job follows you? Not because he loves you. Because you've spoiled him. The devil has a problem with God's law. And you go to the very last seminar, you're going to learn a little more about that, ladies and gentlemen. The end of the book of Job ends with something remarkable. God doesn't give Job the answer, does he? He doesn't tell Job, by the way, it has been the devil that's been attacking you. The first things that God shows Job is basically, hey, let me show you what nature is all about. And then he shows him the universe. And he says, Job, if you can't understand the universe, how are you going to understand spiritual things? One day, Job is going to get to heaven. And by the way, do you know in the book of Job, Job says this, oh, that there was a book written about my life. He says that. And you know what's going to be so funny is when Job gets to heaven and God says, I have something to show you. The book of Job. <laughs> Can you say amen to that? And that's what's so remarkable, ladies and gentlemen. This is extremely important because Job was not just faithful for our planet. He was faithful for the rest of the universe. What you're going to discover more and more, ladies and gentlemen, when I preach on Sunday, I'm going to be talking about how God has raised up the church to send a message to the rest of the universe. Let's keep going. We're almost done. Luke chapter 15, verse 4. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the what? Ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. Ladies and gentlemen, as we begin to understand a little bit more about astronomy, as we understand about theology and understand about this universe, God's creation, we begin to realize that God is much bigger than we actually realized before. His creations are much greater. The Bible says the heavens declare the glory of God, and we understand the heavens is much more greater. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what that means? Greater glory of God. Amen? And we have yet to see the unnumbered worlds that God has created. You had Catholic theology, which Galileo was persecuted for, which was this geocentric view that all there was, this is extremely important, don't miss this point, that all there was was just our little solar system. And everything around, revolved around God, uh, this planet. And this is God's heart right here. He created this planet. It was the center of his universe right here, Earth. And then Galileo began to challenge us and said, no, 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 we are not the center of the universe. It's much bigger than we imagined. And he was persecuted for that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is extremely important because what we begin to understand is that there is a bigger picture in the great controversy, a much bigger picture than we have ever imagined before, and your life matters. The reason why a meta-narrative is so important or a big picture is because it fills in the whole, it adds context. 
Number two, it justifies universal issues in a society so diverse. It produces relevance to a culture that may deny meaning, but ultimately yearns for it. They want purpose to their lives, ladies and gentlemen. And when you bring the gospel to people, you are bringing purpose to them. Amen? The stabilization is provided for a belief community as society rapidly changes and fluctuates. We know what the scriptures are saying, and we stand on that. Can you say amen to that? But ultimately, the greatest reason why we need to understand this universe is so big, why that's extremely important, is because the gospel begins to take on a whole new dimension. Think about this, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, when we get to heaven one day, I mean, after God takes us several days, and we get to finally get to heaven. Here we are. In the midst of this gigantic, huge universe, we'll call some of the angels to our side and they're going to be like, by the way, where's, where's planet Earth? And they're like, All right, okay, we'll get out the star maps. They get out the star maps and they'll show you this huge universe and they'll say, you see, planet, you see this little planet right here? Yeah, that really small one. That's not planet Earth. It's actually much smaller than that. Then they said, we actually have to use special maps because the angels get lost trying to find that planet. <laughs> it will dawn on us that Jesus left all of heaven not just for a planet, but for one soul in the midst of this huge, gigantic universe. It will blow our minds, ladies and gentlemen, when we realize that the condescension was not what we had originally pictured it was, that the condescension was much more greater, greater than we have ever imagined before. Think about this. You know, when you think about bungee jumping, right? You measure bungee jumping not by how low you go. You measure bungee jumping by how high you are. When someone says to you, they say, man, I just jumped off a hundred foot bridge, you may say, wow, that's impressive. But then they say to you, actually, I didn't jump off a hundred foot bridge. I jumped off a 200 foot bridge. You're like, that's a little bit more impressive. And then they say to you, no, I didn't just jump off a 200 foot bridge. I dropped, jumped off a 500 foot bridge. And you're like, oh my goodness, that's crazy. And then they said, I didn't jump off a 500 foot bridge. I jumped off a thousand foot bridge. In other words, it's not how low you go. It's how high they jump for. Ladies and gentlemen, what we're going to discover is that as we explore the universe, we're going to understand that Jesus didn't just condescend from about a 500 foot bridge. That the distance of the condescension was far greater than we ever imagined before. And it will add such value to your soul, ladies and gentlemen, when we realize how huge this universe really is and that the God of heaven and earth became less than a speck for us. That's why this is so important. I love what she says right here. The value of a soul. Who can estimate it? Would you know it's worth? Go to Gethsemane and there watch with Christ through those hours of anguish when he sweat as it were great drops of blood. Look upon the Savior uplifted in the cross. Hear that despairing cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look upon the wounded head, the pierced side, the marred feet. Remember that Christ risked all. For our redemption, heaven itself was imperiled. Heaven itself was imperiled. At the foot of the cross, remembering that for one sinner, Christ would have laid down his life. You may estimate the value of your soul. You may think to yourself, there is no value to your life. You are utterly wrong, ladies and gentlemen. And that's why angels are just astounded when they see people reject the gospel. 
because they have somewhat of a measurement of how big this universe really is. All we see is the sky or pictures, ladies and gentlemen. But these angels have explored the vast domains of this universe. And that's why they're so shocked at the rejection of it that the God of the universe became so, so little for humanity. This world is but an atom in the vast domains which God presides, yet this little fallen world, the one lost sheep is more precious in his sight than the 99 that have not strayed from the fold. Christ, the loved commander in heaven, records, stooped from his high estate, laid aside the glory he had with the Father in order to save the one lost world. For this he left the sinless worlds on high, the 99 that loved him, and came to this earth to be wounded for our transgression, to be bruised for our iniquities. God gave himself in his Son that he might have the joy of receiving back the sheep that was lost. And this is what the Bible says, ladies and gentlemen. You are precious in his sight. You are precious in God's sight. And those moments when you feel like your life has no value, it means absolutely nothing. Ladies and gentlemen, look to the cross and you will see the value that God has given to your life. And this is extremely important, ladies and gentlemen. This is why understanding of the, the greater universe is so important. It is much bigger than we have ever imagined before. The gospel is much bigger. Everything is so much bigger than just our little world that surrounds us. God has given so much to redeem us from this sinful planet. Jesus loves each and every one of you with a very special love. And I just want to challenge you throughout this GYC to be praying, God, Help me to respond to that love that glorifies you. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much. Because one day, Lord, we're going to fly throughout all the universe. And we're going to see the throne of God. We're going to realize that you have left so much to save us. Father, forgive us for placing less value upon the gospel, upon your sacrifice, upon you. We pray, God, that more and more you would take the center of our heart as we have become the center of your heart, Jesus. Lord, may every person go out blessed knowing that the God of heaven and earth loves them. In Jesus' name. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, please visit us online at www.gycweb.org.